Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Beyond the Abstract. I'm Dan, here with Derek. How are you, Derek? I'm good. How are you? I've recently got the distance running bug, and I recently ran my first half marathon, and I have to say, I'm hooked. I'm going to buy you a sticker that says 13.1 for you to slap on your car so everyone knows that you ran a half marathon. (laughs) I'm thinking about a full marathon at one point. Ask me again after I've done the full marathon and I'll probably say it was a terrible idea and I should have uh, stuck to the two miles and the treadmill in the gym. But for now, I'm feeling gung-ho. Yeah, I feel like my legs hurt just thinking about running a marathon. Yeah, it's after 13, I felt terrible. But then soon afterwards, I forgot about it. And I thought doing a marathon would be a good idea. So we'll check in about it in a couple months and see how I'm feeling about it then. Well, before you go off and run your Boston marathon, we'll have to make it through this marathon of an episode. Love it, Derek. I do have to say it's a privilege to talk about it today. It's a really fantastic story that we're excited to share with everyone on this episode. We're going to be talking about an important and underappreciated topic, nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. So it's an episode in three parts. In the first part, we're going to introduce nausea and vomiting in pregnancy and its extreme manifestation, which is called hyperemesis gravidarum. In the second, we'll tell the story of a researcher who made it her professional mission to define the biology of nausea and vomiting of pregnancy after she experienced it herself, a hero. And we want to mention that a lot of this is based on an excellent recent article in the New York Times by Alice Callahan. And in the final third part, we're going to dive into her most recent paper, which makes huge steps in defining the biology of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy and suggests a potential strategy for treatment. To get started, let's talk about nausea and vomiting of pregnancy. Let's think about nausea and vomiting of pregnancy as a range of related symptoms that a pregnant woman can have. On the mild end, nausea and vomiting is common. Up to about 90% of pregnant women experience at least some nausea. The typical presentation at this mild end of the spectrum is known as morning sickness, typically starts around week five or six of pregnancy, peaks around week nine, and subsides by week 16 to 20. We also wanted to note that the term morning sickness is misleading, as even at the milder end of the spectrum, symptoms can occur at any time of day. At the far other end of the spectrum is severe nausea and vomiting, and this is referred to as hyperemesis gravidarum, literally extreme or hyper-vomiting emesis of pregnancy gravidarum. Hyperemesis gravidarum, or HG, affects roughly 1 in 50 pregnancies. There's no strict definition of HG but it often features persistent vomiting at least three times a day, weight loss exceeding 5% of pre-pregnancy body weight, difficulty keeping down food or water, and as a result, severe limitation in ability to function. So this can be certainly extremely unpleasant and often quite debilitating. 
Also, the growing baby needs a lot of nutrients and energy, and all of that comes from mom. So it's important to treat mom so she can get enough to eat and drink so the baby can grow appropriately. I honestly can't imagine being nauseous and vomiting for that long. Truth be told, sometimes my one-day hangovers seem unbearable. <laughs> oh my god, what if there was a TV show on HG and we called it HGTV? That'd be incredible. And that's why he's going into pathology. <laughs> you should quit this MD-PhD thing, Derek, and just come up with punny titles for TV. I think you'd do well. Anyway, as biomedical research and clinical medicine were male-dominated fields until very recently, it's really no surprise that attitudes towards HG were fittingly misogynistic. Doctors told patients that they were throwing up to get attention from their families or to skip out on sharing domestic labor or even that HG was a, quote, oral abortion, the body's way of rejecting the pregnancy in some way. Men? Gaslighting women? No. <laughs> Shocking. Today, if a woman has persistent vomiting, you have to go to the hospital to get intravenous fluids. But before IV fluids became available back in the day, women would often die from HG. Even though women rarely die from HG today, it's still a pretty horrible experience. In a recent survey of 5,000 women who experienced HG, half considered ending pregnancy because of their symptoms, and one-third had suicidal ideation. Clearly, the current treatment options, including a range of anti-nausea medications, isn't cutting it. Even though HG is estimated to cost the health system billions per year, over the last 15 years or so, the National Institutes of Health has only funded a few studies. Alright, so HG is terrible and not well understood, yet we're here to talk about important new research on the biology of HG. So how did we get from HG as the rebellion of the subconscious to tractable biology? So this story begins in 1999 with a researcher named Marlena Faso. Faiso, back then, was a postdoctoral researcher at UCLA in her early 30s. That year, she had her second pregnancy, and she suffered from a severe case of HG. She couldn't keep down food or anything to drink for a month. She needed to be hospitalized for IV fluids, and she was too weak to stand on a scale. And really, tragically, she lost her pregnancy in that illness. When she returned to research soon after, she resolved to study HG. The road wasn't easy. She wasn't able to find a research mentor enthusiastic for supervising HG research, and the progress was slow. In the early 2000s, she started gathering data from women with HG, including whether others in their family had had severe nausea and vomiting in pregnancy, which would suggest a genetic component to the illness. She also collected saliva samples from these women in the hope of maybe one day conducting a genetic study of HG. 
In 2011, she published a study showing that HG tends to cluster in families. Women with HG were four times more likely to have a mother with HG than women without HG. Let's pause briefly here and talk about why a genetic study is the right tool for this question. Let's say you hypothesize there is some molecule in the blood that caused the disease. You could take blood samples from people with HG and people without HG and measure a bunch of molecules in the blood and see if there were any molecules that were different, either higher or lower. But there's a problem here. Could it be different because it causes the disease or is it an effect of the disease itself? Why does this matter? Well, you probably want to find a drug that can change levels of this molecule to treat the disease, but this only works if the molecule itself is causing the disease. That's where human genetics come in. A human genetic study takes care of both of these problems. It is a genome-wide survey of genetic differences between people with HG and without, and you know any differences are those that increase risk for HG, since our DNA is fixed for life and doesn't change with disease. As a human... Genetics lover, really music to my ears here. So they did end up doing a genetic study, but it was from an unexpected source. Back in 2010, Faso contacted a company called 23andMe that some of you may have heard of because they often do tests to tell you your genetic ancestry and basic risk prediction for various diseases. She asked them to include some HG questions in the surveys they give to folks taking their genetic tests. And this ultimately worked because she collaborated with them to run a genetic association study called the GWAS to identify genetic differences between people with HG and those without. This study in 2018 was a breakthrough it was published with Faso as first author, again, nearly 20 years after her own battle with HG. It identified genetic variation in a gene called GDF15, which was associated in that study with HG. And it seemed potentially plausible. GDF15 makes a protein that's expressed by the placenta, and it's known to act at least in part in the brain. And it's really there where the main study that we wanted to talk about today picks up. Again, this 2018 genetic study makes it very likely that something about GDF15 is involved in HG, but there were many open questions about exactly how changes in GDF15 potentially cause HG. Ah, the placenta strikes again, my favorite organ. Had to have something in there for you, Derek, after the association study. Had to throw me a bone, or a placenta, actually. Exactly. Love to do it. All right, so this study is called GDF-15 Linked to Maternal Risk of Nausea and Vomiting During Pregnancy and was accepted in the journal Nature in late November 2023 with Faso as co-first author. How did the study begin, Derek? So the first major contribution of the study was figuring out how levels of GDF-15 changed in people with higher or lower genetic risk for HG. They found that people with a genetic change that put them at higher risk for HG tended to have lower levels of GDF-15, while the opposite was also true. Those at a lower genetic risk 
for HG had higher levels of GDF-15. They follow this up nicely by asking the question, are there people out there with high levels of GDF-15 for whatever reason, and are they protected from HG? It turns out that people born with a blood disorder called beta-thalassemia have high levels of GDF-15 for life, and these people, coincidentally, also have low rates of HG. Let's pause here because this is fascinating and counterintuitive. It's previously been shown that GDF-15 directly causes nausea, but the hypothesis from this data is that maybe people with high circulating levels of GDF-15 in general before they're pregnant get desensitized such that when there is a spike in GDF-15 in pregnancy, the spike doesn't really register in the brain, in the part of the brain that causes nausea, because normally the levels are high anyway, so the brain's like, it's high, but I'm used to levels of GDF-15 being high, so it's not that big of a deal. Really fascinating. I imagine they followed up this hypothesis with some sort of experiment? Exactly. So they hypothesized that if they pre-treated mice with a low level of long-acting GDF-15, they would get less nauseous when they exposed them to a higher level of GDF-15, mimicking a high exposure in pregnancy. And that's exactly what they saw. Of course, you can't ask mice if they are nauseous, but as a proxy, they saw that the mice ate less food. It's a really amazing story, both from a basic science perspective and for the clear implications that these results have for treating HG. Let's talk about what this all means as a potential therapeutic approach. You could imagine a couple of potential therapeutic strategies here. It seems likely that a rise in GDF-15 during pregnancy is necessary for nausea and vomiting. So you could just give a drug that blocks the action of GDF-15. Alternatively, this work suggests that people with higher levels of GDF-15 at baseline are protected against the GDF-15 rise in pregnancy, so you could adopt a similar pre-treatment approach here. Okay, let's summarize what we've discussed today because it was a lot. We talked about how nausea and vomiting in pregnancy is common, and at the extreme end of this is something called hyperemesis gravidarum, or HG. And it's debilitating and until recently lacked a biological explanation or good treatments. We talked about the first patient and then researcher Marlena Faso, who experienced HG herself and over the last two decades has really led efforts to understand HG, first through genetic association studies nominating GDF-15 and most recently, this study in Nature, which generates a hypothesis for how you might treat HG. What did you think about all this, Derek? Honestly, I think it's super inspiring that someone who suffered from a disease herself wanted to go and discover why it happens and potentially how to even treat it. It's really like such a good scientific story of like personal motivation and then really, really good experimental design to follow the biology and find an answer. I agree. I also think it's a lesson in the promise and peril of working in a area that not many people have worked in 
and has less interest in. Clearly, it was very challenging for her at the beginning to gather resources for this sort of work because no one else had worked in the area and it was difficult to get grants to support her work. But once she was able to get it off the ground, a relatively simple study design, a genome-wide association study, clearly nominated plausible biology. And then this most recent study was a very elegant follow-up to that. But in a relatively small number of papers, really most of which we've talked about today, they went from very little biology understood about HG to, I'm sure, discussions around the translational implications of this work, which can help so many patients who need relief from this terrible condition. Along the lines of what you're saying, I think this is another example how a lot of women's health issues are often ignored and underfunded. In the beginning, people didn't even believe that this super debilitating disease even existed. People thought that pe- like pregnant women were just making up in their heads. You know, this is a disease that has pretty like severe consequences. Like people can lose their pregnancies and even the National Institutes of Health has only funded a few studies into something that affects 1 in 50 pregnant women. Absolutely. And I think the results of the studies today are part of the solution to destigmatize this condition. Now that there's tractable biology, that there's a tangible explanation likely for these symptoms, I think that this will make further research much more fundable. And in society, I think it'll do a lot to destigmatize this condition and help folks understand that it's a disease like any other, as opposed to something that's in someone's head or exaggerated or misconception like that. All I have to say is round of applause for Dr. Faso. Absolutely. Round of applause. (laughs) All right. Well, that was super interesting. Hope everyone else found it as interesting and inspiring as we did. And we're excited to see where this work goes, hopefully to treatments very soon. All right, Derek. Talk soon. So today we're going to be talking about a really important and underappreciated topic, which is nausea and vomiting, which I do often, and pregnancy, which I don't do often. Nausea and vomiting, I only do when I visit you in (laughs) Philadelphia, Derek. (laughs) Oh my god.